Welcome to the World Resources Podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm pleased to welcome to the uh, studio today here in Washington, D.C., a visitor from Indonesia, Andika Putraditama. Uh, Andika, I met you soon after I joined WRI. I was uh, very privileged to get to visit WRI Indonesia. And then you left. <laughs> you went off for a master's degree, and I thought, I'm not going to get to see this brilliant guy again. <laughs> and now you're back. I'm back. So it's really nice to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking about the uh, fire season in Indonesia, the drivers of that fire uh, season, the problems with the fires, some of the work that WRI does that you lead, Andika, to prevent those fires, and then something about the connection between palm oil and its importance to Indonesia. But before we get into all of that, how did you get into this line of work? What inspired you to spend your career and go after two master's degrees to figure out what to do about deforestation in Indonesia? Right. Um, so so I, I got to tell you a story about, about how I actually met with WRI. Uh, back in 2012, I was working with the uh, parliament of Indonesia, actually. So I was working as, uh, as an expert staff uh, to the deputy speaker of the house. Uh, and at the time, one of the biggest issues that the Indonesian government wants to lobby uh, the U.S. government uh, with the EPA uh, is palm oil. Um, so I got to meet WRI at the time uh, with my capacity as an expert staff with the, with the parliament. Uh, and then I got to meet with the people at WRI who's been working uh, on this project called uh, Podico Project. So this is this was very an old project. Podico is an acronym for palm oil. Palm oil, timber, and carbon offset. But we don't like the carbon offset part at that time. Uh, and so we, we ended up uh, having Podico. It's just Podico. There's no abbreviation with that. Um, but basically, the project is looking into how can we use degraded land, which is uh, a low-carbon land, uh, for palm oil. And so uh, if we can have uh, this concept implemented in Indonesia, uh, Indonesia can grow its economy, palm oil industry can grow without any uh, uh, destruction of the forest. So at the time, uh, looking into this project, this seems to be uh, like a very good opportunity for Indonesia government to have. Uh, and, and I like Washington, D.C. so much. And, and I applied to WRI and I got accepted. So that's how I met with this uh, organization. You mentioned, you know, looking for ways that Indonesia could grow palm oil and grow its economy. Before we started, you were saying to me that palm oil has now surpassed, surpassed oil and gas. Yes. It's the country's single biggest export. So the yes. stakes for Indonesia are very, very high. Very high. So that's one of the reasons why uh, every time we mentioned about palm oil and the impact of, of palm oil to uh, forests, this becomes a very sensitive issue for Indonesian government. Um, it's, it's a massive industry. It employs around 16 million uh, people uh, directly and indirectly. And uh, in terms of uh, export revenue, uh, we generate almost 18 billion U.S. dollars. And this has surpassed our primary uh, export revenue from oil and gas. Um, so, well, this is a massive industry that the government needs to protect. Uh, but at the same time, it also... Uh, have uh, a lot of negative environmental impact as well. So uh, in order to kind of remedy this, so WRI Indonesia is working together with companies and government uh, on finding ways to grow this uh, industry to help the companies uh, to do their their uh, operations without uh, destroying any more forests and, and, and helping the communities as well. Some of our listeners are very familiar with palm oil, but there's probably a few who don't know anything. It's really a miracle crop, isn't it? What is it used for? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very versatile crop to have. Uh, it, it, it grows in a tropical area. Uh, it actually produces the, the f- uh, fresh fruit punch every month. 
uh, and and you can use it for uh, cooking oil. You can use it for oleochemical. That is uh, uh, kind of a derivative products for uh, cosmetics, snacks, uh, butter. So basically, uh, any kind of products that you use in your day-to-day activities, uh, there's a big chance that it contains palm oil or its derivative uh, shampoo, uh, toothpaste. Uh, it's very hard to avoid palm oil. So everything from biodiesel to uh, yes. confectionaries. Yes. We, lots of uses for for uh, for palm oil. When I was in Indonesia, I had the good chance, I think you were probably there, to go out into a plantation and see the palm oil. Uh, these They look like big bunches of red, greasy dates, but they're incredibly greasy. If you pick one up and you rub it on your hands, it's just the oil is just oozing out of it. Yes, and it's um, very heavy as well. Because it's got all this oil in it. Yeah. So um, coming to the fires, you wrote a blog post in July. Uh, some of our listeners will remember that in 2015, I think it was the first time that the fires in Indonesia, which of course with climate change and demands for clear land had been getting worse over time, really claimed to international attention. The uh, airport in Singapore was closed. Uh, there were a lot of health impacts in Indonesia and in neighboring countries, and 15 marked kind of the high water mark. Since then, for a variety of reasons that you'll tell us about, the fires had been down a little bit. But this year, you and your colleagues said, watch out. This is going to be a bad year. Yeah. Was it as bad as 2015? It's not as bad as 2015, but it's certainly uh, the worst since 2015. So uh, we had a quite a, a kind of a good year in 2016 and 2017. Um, because I think it's a, it's a mix of uh, a good condition. So it's the weather is weather. Uh, uh, the El Nino is not that strong. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the, the price of palm oil has also been plummeting in the last uh, two to three years. So there's less appetite from the, uh, the, the local communities, from the companies uh, to expand uh, their area. And there's also uh, inside as well from the, from the industry of palm oil uh, that we actually have an over, over, of oversupply of palm oil. And that's one of the reasons why the, the, the price has been plummeting since. Um, so uh, we've seen uh, a bit of an uptick of the forest fires this year uh, because, first of all, the El Nino is stronger if you compare it to 2016 and 2017. Uh, and also the, the price of palm oil has been creeping back up. So this is the real test uh, for Indonesia uh, uh, if, they, they, if they want to test out their land use governance. Uh, when the price is going back up, uh, do they actually have uh, a system in place, policy in place to prevent uh, the forest fire from coming back? You led me exactly to my next question because you mentioned these other factors, wetter years, smaller El Nino, now it's ticking up again. I mean, you and your colleagues in WRI and our colleagues in the global office working on Global Forest Watch put a huge amount of effort in supporting the Indonesian government's efforts to reduce the number of fires for good health and economics and biodiversity reasons. Are those things working? <laughs> would 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 2019 have been significantly worse if that prevention effort hadn't been happening? Right. There's a lot of factors that goes into uh, a production of commodities. Right. Uh, there's there's the government policy. There's the market uh, demand as well for certified palm oil, for example. Uh, uh, if you're looking at uh, solely on the policy that the government introduced uh, in the last three to four years. Uh, the Indonesian government, President Jokowi, has actually introduced a very good a number of very good policy. 
One, uh, he established the Peatland Restoration Agency uh, after the forest fires in 2015. So he recognized the importance of peatland, uh, protecting the peatland to, to reduce the risk of having uh, a massive episode of forest fires. And this agency is being mandated to restore 2.6 million hectares of peatland. Um, uh, but uh, as, as with everything that connects to land use, this is a very complex task. This involves a, a very uh, complex uh, interplay of, of actors as well. Uh, so restoration has been ongoing for the last uh, three years. Um, and we've been seeing a, a good result for area that is being restored. Uh, so it has a, a, a smaller number of fires. Uh, so there's there's that kind of piece of restoration. Another piece of, of policy that is being introduced by President Jokowi is the palm oil moratorium. Basically, uh, he was saying that uh, we don't need more land to be converted into palm oil. We have enough land for palm oil. Uh, and in order to uh, reform the industry, uh, we need to take a pause and look at the legacy issues of palm oil, which is a very good policy to be introduced. Um, in, on paper, the policy mandated the local government and the national government to look at uh, existing concession. Uh, and if they, f if they found out that the existing concessions still have good forest, good peatlands, they can be revoked uh, to save the forest. Uh, they can be land swapped to uh, degraded land. Uh, but again, the, the implementation of this policy is very complicated because it involves uh, multiple ministries uh, it involves multiple jurisdiction. Uh, so we're talking about head of district. Uh, the governor needs to be uh, on board as well. Uh, so it will take some time to oper operationalize this, this palm oil moratorium policy. But as a start, it's a very good uh, policy to have. Um, so WRI is now working as well with the companies, uh, supporting them to monitor their supply chain. Uh, a couple of big, good companies have already have policy in place to ensure that their production is not going to be connected with deforestation or forest fires. Uh, this is uh, commonly called as the NDPE commitment or the no deforestation, no peat and, and no exploitation commitment. I want to interrupt you here sure. for a minute. Um, again, some people know a lot about palm oil. <laughs> some of our listeners don't. Similarly with peat. Sure. Um, I think some people, they think of peat bogs as being something we know that if we drink whiskey. <laughs> in Scotland, they have a bit of peat. This is the plant material that's been built up over um, hundreds thousands, of years. Hundreds, yeah. hundreds, hundreds of thousands, thousands of years. Of years. Yeah. Some people will be less familiar with tropical peat. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the peat in Indonesia, why it matters. Yeah, so uh, peat in Indonesia is a very unique ecosystem. Uh, uh, but most importantly, it, it also one of the biggest carbon sink uh, uh, in our, our uh, landscape. Uh, uh, peatland is actually an organic matters uh, that can go uh, down to up to uh, down to like 25 meters in depth. 25 meters? 25 meters in depth. So this um, is hundreds of thousands of years of the jungle growing. Yes. Trees die. Trees dies, and then... And they only rot halfway. Yes, and then submerged by water. So it, it, it prevents them from being uh, uh, oxidized. Uh, so it's all organic matters. So when someone uh, or a company or local communities dredge the peatland uh, to drain out the water, then this organic material is being exposed to oxygen. It it releases the, the carbon that they contain, and that's really bad for, for the climate. Carbon and presumably a lot of methane. Yes. Right? A lot of methane, which is a super pollutant, yes. super gas. So to them, it looks like a marsh. It looks like a swamp. <laughs> yes. We'll drain the swamp. We'll plant some trees. We'll make some money. Yeah. 
Meanwhile, they've got a methane bomb. Yeah. That they've just released all this methane and carbon into the atmosphere. Correct. So we had and then it catches on fire to boot. Huh? Yeah. And actually, uh, one of the reasons why uh, a lot of companies and, and local communities, uh, they want to use peatland for plantation is that because peatland is seen as something uh, neglected. No one is using that. Uh, and this is considered as the cheapest land that you can buy in Indonesia. Uh, in fact, uh, back in 1990s, the President Suharto, uh, then the dictator, uh, he come up with a project of opening up of one million hectares of peatland in Kalimantan for a rice field. And this project is disastrous. Uh, they open up the peatland, uh, they drain the peatland. Now it becomes one of the most degraded peatland area in Indonesia, and it burns uh, almost every year. Uh, but we've never seen a good a good result from that that rice field. When you say nobody's using the peatlands, I can think of somebody who's using them. Is the orangutans? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they, they live in the jungle that's, that's on the peatland. So yeah. when you clear this off, there's other creatures, maybe not human beings, mm-hmm. but but other creatures yeah. whose homes are destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to shift now. You you started to touch on the commitments of some. Uh, I guess they're mostly multinationals to mm-hmm. a, a no carbon, no peat, uh, sort of deforestation free supply chain. Yeah. Um, tell me a story about one of those companies and how that would play out in Indonesia. Yeah, so uh, a lot of these multinational companies, uh, because of the pressure from the market, uh, mostly coming from the European uh, market as well as the United States market, uh, they want to ensure that their supply chain is free of deforestation, free of forest fires, uh, there's no peat involved there, uh, there's no social exploitation. Uh, so they came up with ways to uh, introduce a policy uh, within their supply chain as well as within their operation uh, to make sure that they buy uh, the good palm oil. Uh, usually this is being done through certifications of, of the palm oil products. So we have uh, a voluntary scheme called the RSPO or the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Uh, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm You know, I've been hearing RSPO for right. a long time and I couldn't have told you what it was for. Okay, <laughs> it's the Roundtable on Sustainable. So they're the standard setting organization. Yes, so this is a multi-stakeholder forum uh, where NGOs and private sectors and also government can sit together and define what is considered as good uh, ethical palm oil. So the rules are being made uh, not only by NGOs, but also needs to be agreed by the companies. Um, this is this is uh, the main differences if you compare it to a, a government standard, for example. So for uh, consumers who may not know m- that much about Indonesia, I think a lot of people have heard of dolphin safe tuna, right? Same idea. Right. Or, or certain kinds of timber that are certified as being sustainable. The product itself is indistinguishable. Palm oil is palm oil, right? So it all has to do with sort of the chain of custody, yes. where it's coming from. So how significant is that demand? I could imagine a situation in which Cargill, for example, or Nestle, some of the big companies that are exposed to uh, shareholder pressure and to uh, to protests, would say, we're only going to get the RSPO, right. the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. We're going to get that. Right. But I'm guessing, for example, that there's a lot of demand for palm oil in India and China, mm-hmm. that they're mostly driven by price. Yeah. And so you could get, correct me if I'm wrong, 10%. If we're lucky, 15% is RSPO. <laughs> the other 80, 95%, nobody cares. Yeah. Is that what's going on? Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're looking into the total trade volume of palm oil globally, 
only 20% of that is certified as, as RSPO certified oil. Uh, and if we're only looking at the uh, the value chain or the supply chain of this major uh, multinational company that already have commitment, uh, even even them have difficulties in ensuring that their supply chain is fully compliant to this uh, policy and commitments. Uh, at most, uh, we're talking about big companies like uh, Cargill, Wilmar. Um, they only control about 20% of their total trade volume. The rest of them, they need to buy it from uh, from a third-party suppliers. They need to buy it from their uh, uh, the smallholders, for example. Uh, and so, trickling down this policy and 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 guidance and ensuring them following the rules of of the sustainability practices of palm oil is very difficult. Uh, let alone talking about uh, uh, an independent company who sells to China or India, uh, who doesn't even have uh, an NDPE policy. Um, so the biggest, uh, I think the biggest flip of, of this problem is the demand side. We've been years intervening the supply side, so talking to growers, to traders, making sure that they do the right thing. Uh, but we haven't done a lot of work on the demand side. We haven't done a lot of communication to the public why they need to buy certified palm oil. Uh, or, or even, uh, or even demystifying that that uh, narrative that all palm oil is bad. For example, uh, it's also not a good narrative to have if you uh, put a blanket uh, statement that all palm oil is bad. We need to avoid palm oil because uh, one thing is that palm oil is the most efficient uh, uh, oil crop compared to other uh, sources of oil. Uh, compared to rapeseed, compared to uh, corn, palm oil is still the highest. Uh, yield uh, crop. Uh, second is that a lot of a lot of workers are actually uh, uh, depending their lives on palm oil and the Indonesian economy. As as I said, as I mentioned before, uh, it's the biggest export revenue for Indonesia. So there's uh, it's it's a very difficult uh, problem uh, to solve because the right way to uh, to to address this problem is to ensure that sustainable palm oil becomes the norm rather than the exception. So talk to me about China. Yeah. Um, we're having our uh, board meeting this week. We've got our representatives, our directors from all the international offices. Your boss, Pak Kony, is here. Fang Li, our new international office director for China, is here. China is getting ready to host a major UN conference on the Convention on Biodiversity. When we talk about biodiversity, driving deforestation for palm oil is perhaps one of the largest factors, maybe the largest single factor. We could dream, let's imagine, that China wanted to demonstrate its commitment to biodiversity, and so they made a commitment between now and the Convention on Biodiversity, and they said, over the next five years, China is going to shift to 100% RSPO palm oil, 100% certified palm oil. Could Indonesia respond? Oh yeah, certainly. Uh, that would be amazing, and this is why uh, I love working for WRI because we have leverage because uh, we have office in China, we have office in India, uh, and certainly in Indonesia. So we can leverage this sisterhood to work together in addressing uh, one specific issues of palm oil. Uh, if if we can convince China to buy a uh, hundred percent of their palm oil to be a certified palm oil. That would certainly make a dent on the global supply chain of palm oil, and and companies would soon uh, realize that, that that this is worth uh, investing. Uh, one of the reason why uh, the the palm oil, uh, the certified sustainable palm oil, is not moving 
uh, too fast in the in the last I think three to five years is that there's not enough incentive for the majority of the industry to change their business as usual practices. Um, so if you can demonstrate one of the biggest market for palm oil, one certified palm oil, then that certain that that is a, that is a very strong uh, a message. Um, to the producers, to the traders, and to the uh, consumer goods manufacturers, that it can actually uh, do good with this with this demand. Th- this was uh, a pipe dream, perhaps. Are there discussions going on about this? Yeah, uh, actually. So the Indonesia office is now trying to come up with uh, with a project, an initiative, to increase the demand for certified palm oil. But one of the uh, one of the key challenge there is that. Uh, the, f- the consumer goods manufacturer, they don't want to put uh, a, a logo of a certified palm oil on their products, even though they have uh, achieved, for example, 100% certified palm oil within their supply chain. Uh, and when we talked to them, uh, why don't you want to put the RSPO logo on that? Uh, they said that the narrative on palm oil is so toxic, they prefer not to identify products with palm oil in, in, in their products. Uh, so rather than identifying that their product use good palm oil, they would rather consumers not knowing that there's palm oil there. Um, so I guess a big part of this is actually uh, an outreach uh, strategy to ensure that the public knows and aware that uh, good palm oil is possible, good palm oil is on the shelf of their supermarket, uh, and once we can uh, uh, have an agreement with the producers of, of consumer goods to, p- to put and identify uh, products that use a certified palm oil, uh, then we can get the ball rolling. Uh, for now, uh, for example, WWF has this uh, amazing campaign uh, called the Bliang Bike in Indonesia. So in English, it, it loosely translated as buy the good ones, right? Um, but the problem is in Indonesia, the good ones are not on the shelf, uh, or at least companies are not willing to identify which products uses the good palm oil. Um, so this becomes the chicken and egg where the companies would say there's not enough demand, there's not enough purchasing power in Indonesia. But on the other side, we cannot test out that hypothesis without putting the uh, putting and identifying the good products on the shelf. So it it involves a, a tricky negotiation between you know NGOs, uh, the the traders as well as the consumer goods manufacturer. How, how big is the price differential between the certified palm oil and the non-certified? That is also one thing that we need to demystify. Uh, I always talk with the traders and the growers, but they wouldn't refill the premium price because that's that's considered as business advantage. Uh, but looking into uh, but these are commodities. Presumably, when you trade a commodity, the trading price for certified and non-certified palm oil is known. Yeah, that's uh, the the price. The premium price is believed to be around five to ten percent, right? But the pr- that is the premium paid for the certified is five to ten percent more than the other. Correct. I uh, but when it comes to uh, products on the shelf, we we don't know for sure uh, how much would it cost for the consumers, right? Whether the company absorb it or they passed it on to the consumers. Uh, but uh, I've been doing a very simple desktop exercise. I looked into uh, cooking oil price, the most expensive one in Indonesia, and and the certified cooking oil price that they have in Malaysia. Because we don't have in Indonesia, we don't have cook, uh, certified cooking oil price, uh, cooking oil for palm oil, uh, and and I found out that the highest, the the most expensive cooking oil in Indonesia is actually uh, uh, still more expensive than a certified oil that they have in Malaysia, which means that maybe we can put certified 
palm oil products uh, uh, on par with the regular uh, uh, products on the shelf. You're very interested in the consumers driving change. I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in a sort of top-down move by China to get international support for it hosting this biodiversity. Um, And I don't know if it's possible to imagine that China would say, you know, we will prefer RSPO, certified palm oil, whenever it's price competitive. We're not going to pay extra. But as long as it's available and it's certified, we're going to buy as much as we can get. Yeah, that could be an interesting market signal. That's that's an interesting uh, hypothesis as well. Uh, so they can they can substitute premium price for uh, for example uh, a long term contract. So, so company would also look that as as a benefit, right? Having a certainty for them to sell to certain uh, market preferred access, preferred access, even though the price might be. The same. The same, just, yeah. Did I get a long-term contract? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of mechanism to be uh, introduced. Um, yeah. Potentially is there. So we're just about at 25 minutes. I want to wrap this up soon. And then also I want to get you and go and you and I together, go find Fang Li, WI China director, <laughs> sure. and, and Pak Kony and see if we can strike a deal. Let's do that. get WI China working working uh, with our Chinese colleagues Certainly. to see if we can get that demand for the certified palm oil yeah. up from China. <laughs> Any final thoughts that you want to leave our audience with, Antika? Um, yeah, I think a lot of people are seeing this forest fire issue as something, uh, uh, a, a very simplistic issue, right? We have forests, we have peatland, and then people burned it to clear the lands for agriculture purposes. Uh, but what we've seen uh, so far, having been doing this research for quite a number of years now, uh, there's a lot of complexity to unpack there. Uh, people are actually burning the land uh, for profit. Uh, so burning the land is actually a commodity, uh, not the palm oil itself as a commodity. Um, and then regulation-wise, market incentive-wise, there's so much things to figure out. And, and definitely we can... Just when you say burning the land for profit, yeah. from my previous discussions, these would be sort of a small, small to medium size or even organized crime. Yeah. They burn it illegally, so they commit the crime. Yeah. Then they sell it to somebody else who doesn't want to be caught burning it. Exactly, exactly. But they're happy to have the land. Yeah. So that's what the product is. Yeah. The product is cleared land. Yeah. So, and uh, criminal organizations will do this because they're criminals. Exactly. Um, j- just uh, talking about the price point, uh, when you have a land that is not being cleared, uh, it could cost around $500 per hectare in Indonesia. But if you burn the land and clear the land using fires, it could go up to $800 per hectare. If you plant it with seedlings of palm oil, uh, then you can sell it for $1,300 per hectare. So you can see that uh, the practice of burning the land is, it, is in itself a commodity. Uh, and if we cannot um, uh, put an incentive on saving the forest, putting the price on saving the forest higher than this uh, commoditized uh, 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 land grabbing, land speculation, uh, there's no way we can address this for as fires. It all comes back to economics. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always a treat to talk with you. I always learn so much. Uh, this is Lawrence McDonald with the WI Podcast. I've been speaking with Andika Putratitama. Uh, he is the Sustainable Commodities and Business Manager with WI Indonesia. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for hosting me. You can find the WRI podcast on uh, Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else where uh, fine podcasts are given away. Uh, We hope you'll join us next time for our next episode.